1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Folta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And this week, we're going to talk about an, an event that was held in the developing world, namely in Nairobi, Kenya. And it was an event that was held mostly to apparently disparage biotechnology, But the good news is, is that somebody went there to see what was happening and to ask some hard questions of the participants. And we're reminded that not all heroes wear capes, (laughs) Um, especially the ones that work on lathes and engines, right? Today, we're speaking with Rob Wager, and uh, Rob is a faculty member in the Bio Department and Vancouver Island University in beautiful Nanaimo, Vancouver, BC, or, or just in BC, right?
2: Yeah, Vancouver Island, yes.
1: Yeah, Vancouver Island. That's right, uh, across the street from ba- Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, how's it going, Rob?
2: Oh, just wonderful. Thank you.
1: Now, it's wonderful to have you on. You know, you've been an old friend and really a, an a outstanding supporter of technology and uh, and talking about technology with the public and working on social media for a long time. And um, maybe, I guess, the best place to start is where did you get the idea to actually visit? this kind of a conference?
2: Well, I guess it started when I saw the advertisement online for the first uh, international conference on agroecology in Nairobi, Kenya. And that oven by itself was fine, but what was clear was that they were importing uh, some of the big names in the anti-GMO industry to come to this conference, and, and it seemed a bit strange because agroecology um, is more about organic agriculture as opposed to um, using the anti-GMO uh, memes and, and falsehoods to scare the public. So I, I was I was worried that um, bringing this these group of people to Africa would uh, be used to try and stall the implementation of African developed uh, genetically engineered crops.
1: Yeah and and where was the conference held? I don't think we talked about that.
2: Uh, It was held at a a very nice resort called Safari Park Resort in uh, Kenya, in in Nairobi, Kenya.
1: Okay so this was kind of a uh, conference that was really around agroecology at least build that way and agroecology you know you that's a a series of disciplines which really allow you to farm with fewer inputs or different inputs and it doesn't always necessarily have to be anti biotechnology but or actually you could use biotechnology solutions in an agroecological context, and maybe even better. But I guess here's the question is, was there anything there to do with agroecology, or was it strictly this anti-biotech stuff?
2: Actually, there was there was a fair bit of uh, discussions about the FAO initiative to scale up agroecology. And uh, there was one talk that I found very fascinating on the push-pull technology. So there are applications that Uh, Of this technology that could be very useful. However, uh, a significant portion of the um, conference was devoted to trying to scare uh, people away from using biotechnology.
1: I guess that makes sense in a way because Africa is looking for solutions. And if you want to propose ideas you could use agroecological solutions that are being embraced by many um, or you do have biotechnology solutions which also have their place do you get the feeling that the whole conference was more of a anti-biotech feel or was it really something that was trying to promote just good farming practices
2: um a significant portion if not the lion's share of, of the talks were designed to um, denigrate uh, modern agricultural techniques, including biotechnology, but also synthetic fertilizer use, uh, synthetic pesticide use. They really were trying to um, argue that the best way forward was going back 100 years in agriculture.
1: But isn't that kind of true in some ways that a lot of uh, people on the African continent have no access to uh, Haberbosch-derived fertilizers or modern pesticides? So doesn't it make sense to to really train them and give them the best up-to-date research in uh, other techniques which do not require those inputs?
2: Um, that's certainly true. But when I went out to the the farms in the middle of the country, it was pretty clear to me that the farmers were already using uh, most of the techniques that were being championed at this conference as a way forward. So they were already using these techniques. And so this didn't represent any, um, major shift in in the way to grow agriculture. And what we know now, it's very clear that uh, Africa is having a very hard time feeding itself with these techniques.
1: Okay, that's fair. And I guess the question then really tr- goes to the conference itself and the participants or the speakers that were there in kind of an anti-biotech context but maybe we should start with one other question is you know what um how did you get there i mean were you funded by the big biotech companies to you know go and cause trouble in the space
2: uh no not at all actually i i was successful in getting grants from my university and using my own professional development funds and um, securing private financing. And so the biotech industry uh, (laughs) contributed exactly zero dollars to my trip to Africa.
1: Okay, yeah, it's good to get that cleared out front because you know the claims that go with that pretty well. (laughs) Well, Oh, yes. (laughs) So now that we talked about who funded you, who funded the conference
2: uh, this funding was mainly from European uh, environmental NGOs, and so that was Swiss, German, and Swedish NGOs that funded the vast majority. As well, there was funding uh, from IFOM, which is the International Federation for Organic Agriculture Movement, and uh, a few other um, BioVision Africa Trust. Um, so, a lot of the money came from Europe to present and import these, uh, speakers, uh, into Africa.
1: Ah, so who were the speakers that were invited? Who's their all-star team of, uh, scientific expertise?
2: Uh, yeah, the s- scientific expertise, uh, needs to be in quotes there. Um, they had the infamous Saralini who, uh, in 2012 produced, uh, the now, uh, retracted paper claiming that, uh, glyphosate and GM crops caused cancer in rats. Of course, we now know that that's completely been debunked. Uh, Then we had Tyrone Hayes, who's known for his um, advocacy of against using atrazine, where he claimed atrazine caused the feminization in frogs. Then we had uh, Judy Carmen, who did the infamous pig study with an organic farmer in the U.S., claiming that there was inflammation of the stomach linings and again uh, highly uh, questionable uh, science and finally we finished off with uh, Don Huber who's uh, a retired professor from Purdue University who has um, made a major shift in his uh, public outreach and now he's very much against the use of glyphosate and he has some interesting ideas about uh, the reality of glyphosate use.
1: Hmm. So I guess what we should probably do is just go down the list and talk a little bit about what they were presenting and what the what the central ideas were. Um, let's start out with uh, you know, let's start out with Tyrone Hayes. Now Tyrone Hayes, you know, he has some legitimacy in that. He's a professor at uh, Berkeley, you know, a guy's got published peer reviewed manuscripts around um which you know seem credible around the use of at least in a uh, in controlled circumstances that there are effects of uh, atrazine on amphibians and amphibian development. And so, what is it that he was going with that would make him most appropriate for this kind of uh, audience?
2: Well, his his um, talk really focused on atrazine particularly, uh, and you know he started out with a picture. Uh, the very tragic event of the Oklahoma bombing. And so he started out trying to vilify the use of pesticides. Well, that wasn't a legitimate use of pesticide. Any technology.
1: (laughs) Oh, Oh, yes. And
2: and then he went on to uh, showing uh, deformities of poor children in... uh, the Far East, when uh, after the result of uh, two, four, five key spraying and the dioxin contamination uh, during the uh, Vietnam War, and again, uh, not an appropriate use of technology, and it was used to really scare the the uh, people at the audience. Wow,
1: what, what what was his central theme, though? I mean, he was talking about atrazine, but atrazine is what was. Replaced. So atrazine went away when the onset of uh, of glyphosate was available and Roundup Ready products or glyphosate tolerant products. So what was the leg to stand on for him and what was his major point for agroecology?
2: Well, um, he made the point that atrazine is still very widely used in the U.S., and he quoted a number of 80 million pounds of atrazine are applied on the U.S. Um, on an annual basis. And that may very well be true, as, as um, corn or maize is, is naturally tolerant to this herbicide, so it may very well be still widely used. But he was uh, hammering away at the idea that atrazine represented a major endocrine disruptor.
1: Okay, and so and that's what's so strange though is that that atrazine is something that is available is out there in the levels used. You know, you can use it safely. You know, at least from my understanding. And his uh, major drive though has always been to say that this stuff is bad news. So the place where it probably is used most is on non-GE corn, non-GE sweet corn, um, other um, non-GE grasses. So it just seems strange that he would be there as part of the conference because he really is talking about and vilifying a good technology that was replaced by something much better. And actually, if you want to go more agroecology, going towards glyphosate maybe is a better alternative. Uh,
2: I I definitely agree. I personally think that glyphosate is one of the best agricultural compounds ever invented it's uh, low toxicity it's non-persistent nature it's uh, breakdown products being completely non-toxic it truly is a a wonderful compound unfortunately there are activists around the world who have been very successful at vilifying this particular compound and uh, so the myths out there are significant
1: what, was he wearing a cape and doing all of his, you know, like he, he's very garish when you see him speak or when you see him online. He, uh, you know, uh, wear, you know wears really cool suits. And, and just, you know, was he still doing that very uh, over-the-top presentation style?
2: Um, a little bit. He wasn't quite as uh, garish, as you put it, as you see him often online. But he definitely was a showman at the front of the room. And uh, one of his... Uh, things that he repeated again and again and again was that your children's children will be affected by these compounds used today. I mean, if you can't scare people uh, by threatening their grandchildren, uh, it just, it was unfortunately um, hard to watch.
1: Well, those kinds of uh, proclamations are especially effective in the African continent, where people do have their families threatened by other natural causes, um, whether it's disease, medical, nutritional. And so to say that, you know, this will threaten your grandchildren really hurts, really resonates with people in those countries. So that that's a really um, sad thing to say. Uh, was there anything else he said or did that was particularly noteworthy?
2: Uh, yeah, he, he claimed that atrazine, causes uh, a dramatic drop in sperm count in males. Now, you want to target the African uh, male population, you tell them that they can't produce offspring. He also said that atrazine feminizes the male population. So, again, if you want to uh, really get the fear at a very high level, that's how you do it. And he did exactly that.
1: Well, what about um, good old uh, Gilles Eric Um Did he, um, uh, he was he on fire the whole time, or what, what was his story?
2: Well, it was, his was a little bit interesting because he was the only one of the four who didn't actually show up. He uh, came in by video conference, and um, the video conference had some technical issues, which, up and by itself, we all know how that happens. So there's nothing. Um, sinister about that, but in in his conference, or in his talk to the uh, conference, none of his slides show up, so you had to just take whatever he said at face value, even though that when we as scientists look at his data, it becomes very clear that the data does not represent um, quality uh, evidence of the uh, commentation that he often puts with it.
1: So if you could see my slide, you would see the data that suggests. <laughs> no, but this is this is a common thing for him. He had a problem when he was uh, being grilled by the National Academies of Science a few years ago too, and it seems like technical glitches are kind of his way of dodging responsibility to produce something legitimate or or hide something that could um, provoke reasonable criticism and. So I, I don't know if that was really the feeling you got there, or what do you think?
2: Uh, it was hard to to tell. Uh, you know, the way his video conference went, uh, right from the very beginning where he was having uh, problems with sound and everything, I have a feeling it was uh, more innocent, and he just didn't have a good handle of the system he was working with.
1: Okay, so I'll give him a break there. But what about when you look at... Um, uh, uh, the fact that his paper, when that came out in 2012, so seven years ago almost, it immediately shut down interest in GE crops from the um, Kenyan government. So here, he, here you are in Kenya, where he successfully single-handedly shut down development of these technologies for people that really need them. And do you think it was more of a question of he doesn't want to show his face in Kenya? and I mean, is he looked at as a hero or as someone who truly is a villain in that country?
2: Without a doubt, he his work had a significant impact in blackballing uh, genetically engineered crop research by the Kenyan scientists, um, and they, they've got some wonderful products that are working their way through the regulatory system. Um, but Since we've seen in the last uh, few years, there's been four major studies out of Europe using European money, using proper controls, using proper methodology, uh, using proper statistics that have all failed to reproduce his infamous 2012 paper. So I think we can safely say that that 2012 paper has been thoroughly debunked.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Not just was it appropriately criticized in the beginning, but now you've had four other organizations not reproduce it. And what's really sad about that is that not one of them got any substantial coverage, fanfare, pasting all over the internet, like that image of the three rats that still exists today in most forms online. And it just has incredible staying power. Um, But what is he up to today? Did he talk about any of his current work or any current claims?
2: Um. He has shifted away from doing uh, talking about that 2012 one, except for the fact that he's still using the samples from those poorly designed experiments, and now he's moved into metabolomics and and transcriptomics, the the methods of tracking uh, gene expression and protein production, and now he's making all kinds of uh, grandiose negative claims using, apparently, the new modern techniques.
1: Yeah, which is really funny because when you go back to that original paper and he's saying, "Look at the tumors and how sick these animals are," and you, we all remember the really grotesque pictures of the animals that looked like they were, you know, stuffed full of ping pong balls. It was horrible what they did to those animals. But now you take samples from them and say, "Look how look at these samples that say these animals are sick." You know, you know what I mean. It's kind of the a cyclical problem. You're trying to say, "Look what how dangerous these." products are and uh, whether it's the corn or the uh, glyphosate, and then you take your samples from sick animals to show that. So in other words, you're, you're it's kind of a self-fulfilling pros- prophecy. It's not saying that those inputs of corn and glyphosate cause the cancer. It says that when an animal with extreme cancer that's really sick um, is going to have screwed up m- metabolomics and transcriptomics.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely! It it was um, it was almost laughable when you could see that he was claiming that when using those extremely sick rats. I mean, they had tumors that were over fifty percent of their body mass, uh, very sick. And then to claim that I'm using their samples to prove something completely different. You know, it's as you say, self uh, self fulfilling um, circular science. I wouldn't call it science, but he does
1: oh, yeah well that's the old story a dog with no legs doesn't jump through a hoop and that's kind of his uh, but he's still uh he's putting the hoop over the dog and saying look at it, <laughs> it jump through and and it, it's a way of uh, or a better example is the idea i don't remember what fallacy they call this but where you uh shoot an arrow at the side of a barn and then draw the target around it and say look at i hit it yeah, exactly, <laughs>
2: exactly. Uh, it was, you know, and, and unfortunately, because a lot of the audience is not uh, trained in the scientific disciplines, they just lapped this up as, as, and as one of the promoters of the talk, he kept saying, evidence, 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 that's what you've just seen. And I'm sitting back going like, no, I saw lots of bluster, I saw no evidence whatsoever, and um, all I saw was a fear campaign.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you're there in the audience, and so did you get to raise your hand and say, wait a minute, you know, this isn't real data?
2: Well, unfortunately, we were not allowed to ask questions of Seralini.
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, so he, he did not allow anyone to ask questions after his session?
2: Well, I guess apparently they. Technical problems overtook the presentation. So once his presentation was done, we were pretty much left with uh, no recourse to uh, address any of the comments that he had made.
1: Wow. Well, that but that's kind of that. Also, though, is part of a pattern, and you know we've seen that before. Uh,
2: definitely, definitely true.
1: Yeah. So that well, you know, that's another another that's another data point. You know, that evidence, 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 right? If there was one theme from across all of these presenters that they uh, maybe came together with, and, you know, we've talked already about Hayes and, Ceralini, and and what were all of them kind of tying it together with?
2: It's interesting. front of them always started out with the same theme, that regulators around the world are incompetent or are in cahoots and therefore are not protecting the public. They then presented their evidence as it would be at the end they always finished off with regulators are not to be trusted we know the real science and regulators are not protecting the public
1: okay so it's not so it's all the regulators but also all the other scientists in the world like um nobody else sees that you know this thing that's you producing a huge amount of our food uh has problems and nobody else seems to find it except for you know this handful of usual suspects but that's how they're pitching this, and how is the audience reacting to that?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. These people are good showmen. They're, they're terrible scientists, but they're very good showmen. And they convince the public by putting up what it amounts to junk science that they are, in fact, the ones who are looking out for the public, and only they understand how to do the science properly to demonstrate these alleged problems.
1: Let's talk for a second about Judy Carmen. Now, Judy Carmen came to um, light back in the I don't know, maybe now that paper's pretty old too. That probably goes back to what 2014 or 13, where she showed uh, made a claim in a rather obscure online journal on sustainable farming that pigs fed um, corn. Uh, G.E. corn had more stomach lining irritation, and you remember these pictures where they showed um, three pig pig stomachs and some were a little pink, and they ranked all of the stomachs by high, medium, and low. I don't remember even the exact details of why it was such a poor study, but it was one of these things that we kind of just wrote off. Um, Here we are, what, six years later, and never was reproduced or followed up, but it probably was because she was busy um, doing better studies at higher resolution with more numbers and better um, techniques, right? And that's what she presented in Kenya.
2: Well, almost. (laughs) <laughs> she she uh, has now teamed up with a faculty member from the University of Adelaide. They presented what they claimed was definitive evidence of rats that were fed uh, GM corn.
1: Now, you're talking about uh, Carmen and, and her... Um uh, collaborator who I think was um, Irina uh, Zadarsky or Ziadarsky. Um, they did some experiments that apparently attempt to follow up on that pig study that was never um, that you know that was a dead in the water one off study. Nobody else followed up on it. They didn't follow up on it. It just was DOA. Um, but what did the rat? study tell us?
2: Well, that was very interesting. Uh, First, uh, if you look, I was completely unaware of this paper that they were uh, citing during this talk. And usually I'm pretty up to date on on most of the scientific literature, both good and and poor quality science. Um, And so I was completely unaware of this paper. Um, So they presented evidence that apparently showed that in rats, when you fed them 60% diet, 50 or 60% diet of corn, which we know is beyond the uh, reasonable amount of uh, food in a rat diet. Uh, OECD has very strict uh, regulations on how animal feeding trials should be done, and they max out at 30% or 33%. So they they gave far too much corn to these rats. They use corn from two different continents, one from North America for the test and one from Australia for the controls. Well, of course, we know that that is just very poor um, way of doing a feeding trial, at the end, they showed one or two pictures of what appeared to be small openings in the gap junction between individual cells lining the uh, gut of, of rats. So I, I, I thought this was really interesting that um, I'd never seen this um, paper, and I'm not a histologist, so I couldn't quite uh, see where there may be uh, issues with this particular science. So I went back to my room and downloaded the paper and read the paper, and then I thought, well, oh, it's been out a year now. Uh, Who cited it? And in the year that it's been published, one citation has occurred, and that was from an anti-GMO organization in Europe. So clearly the Uh, scientific community around the world did not see uh quality within this paper
1: well but that's not terribly uncommon but methodologically not only was it completely different corn um you know one from the u.s that was a triple stack uh type corn and the other one not um i was in australian and just you know some corn strain they don't even identify what it is um but (laughs) what, what um they also used uh Ten rats in each group for six months it just was a very um, weak study but but of course how strong were their claims and what were they claiming from this
2: oh again they started out with attacks on the Australian regulators the Australian New Zealand Food Safety Authority uh, and and saying that these people simply do not know how to do proper toxicology studies but we do and here's what we found and then of course after presenting that data um they had the audience well in their hand and that the, and then they ended up with saying this is a way toxicology study should be done, um, and that the regulators should not be trusted, and we know what's really going on.
1: Yeah. Especially that when that they say that when they do the study so poorly, using non-isogenic lines, bad controls basically, um, ad libitum feeding of water and food, so you can eat as much as you want. Just right there, it changes the entire dynamic of the study, because if the GE corn has more, you know, oil or fat or something in there that the rats like, they'll put on more weight and they won't have, they won't be as healthy and has nothing to do with the genetics. It has to do with the amount you're fed. And so anyway, we can, we can go into the details of debunking papers another time, but um, you know, it just was, it just is strange that here they are years after this paper that had all this visibility again, like the Seralini paper falling flat without any additional evidence to follow up or show anything new.
2: Yeah, the, the very basics of science is reproducibility. And yet, in all these cases, of all four of these people, the claims that they are making have simply not been reproducible.
1: So we'll continue with more discussion of <laughs> Rob's uh, ventures in Africa um, right after the break. We're talking to Rob Wager, who's a faculty member of the biology department at Vancouver Island University. Uh, he recently went to a conference on agroecology in Africa and uh, is giving us a report of some of the exciting things he saw. This is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a minute. Stop Stop. Tune into the podcast on Saturday, August 17th, 2019. It's the 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Science. One day after Elvis' death day, more guests sharing their solutions for people and the planet. Gene editing to cure animal disease. New therapies for cancer and viral disorders. Next generation crop technologies for sustainable farming. This is Screaming out of the gate with new technologies in the race to feed 10 billion people. High nutrient crops, less resource dependence, fewer pesticides, and more
2: sustainability. Biotechnologies.
1: Covering disinformation that generates fear, uncertainty, and doubt that is impending technology from reaching the industrialized world farmer and the food insecure. Saturday. 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 Saturday, August 17, 2019. The 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. 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 Podcast.
2: Talkingbiotechpodcast.com.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're talking with Rob Wager. He's a faculty member in the biology department at Vancouver Island University in beautiful Nanaimo, B.C., where the sturgeon are large and the rabbits are everywhere. <laughs> Very true. Very true. (laughs) That was a lot. I actually was out there uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, that was really nice to be able to come out with Nina Fedoroff and uh, take a ride on the shuttle over, or whatever that was, on the uh, ferry over across the uh, bay there. That was really a nice trip. So uh, we we were there for Food Evolution.
2: Yeah, it was was my honor to have both you and Nina come and participate in uh, the screening of Food Evolution at my university. It was a tremendous success.
1: Yeah, I thought that was really nice. It was uh, really cool. (laughs) It had a lot of friends from Vancouver Island show up, which was kind of interesting. That was a lot of fun. And I mean that in a good way, friends like actual friends, not friends in quotes like people with (laughs) signs. So if we go back to... um, uh, the discussion about the conference. The other participant was my old buddy, Dr. Don Huber. What was his main thesis?
2: Well, you know, it was interesting. We've uh, been following Don Huber uh, since, what was it, 2012 or 2013 when he claimed to have found a brand new pathogen that crossed kingdoms. <clears throat> and of course, your uh, efforts to help him identify this uh, new pathogen uh, were, of course, uh, denied. And, and But he never made any mention whatsoever of this uh, alleged pathogen that 13 years later, whatever, has uh, no evidence to support it. What he did do, though, was he spent well over an hour listing one after another falsehoods about glyphosate of how it is the most evil compound on the planet, and it apparently is responsible for everything from severe halitosis to cancer in both plants and animals.
1: Yeah. Well, that was uh, 2011 when he first uh, made the claim about the secret organism. And he wrote this letter as a uh, emeritus faculty member and as a former member of the U S military um, who, where he had some higher up role in military. Um, he wrote this letter to the USDA Ag Secretary, Agriculture Secretary, uh, Tom Vilsack. And he basically, in my mind, committed fraud. That when you go to the US government, the highest branches of government, and then create a false story, you know, the, the, right there, the guy seems a little off his rocker. And uh, I made it, asked him a few years later, um, you know, when he gave a talk at in my town about, Oh, well this thing is everywhere and it's killing people and killing animals and killing plants and absolute crisis. And the audience was stunned. And during question and answer session, you know, everybody kind of went, "Ah, oh, jeez, you're going to have, ask him a question and you know, grill the guy I said, no, no, I'm going to offer him some assistance. <laughs> said, you know, we we sequenced the strawberry genome a few years ago. We can sequence your organism's genome, and we can stop this crisis. And uh, he spent 20 minutes talking about how it has no genetic material, <laughs> that it's, a, you know, such a crazy organ. It doesn't have any uh, DNA or RNA. And then wrote a really nasty letter to my uh, university saying that I was uh, – disruptive and needed anger management and all this stuff. And I didn't say a peep. Luckily, I recorded it. But uh, So he didn't even mention the organism anymore? Not a word, and I was a little bit surprised
2: by that, but what he did do was scare the living daylights out of everybody in that room. He went on for well over an hour uh, stating all kinds of things. One of the things that really surprised me is, is he started his talk with a statement which, strangely, might be very true, he said that he does not know of a single peer-reviewed paper that shows that GM foods are safe. And I thought, well, okay, the several. Th- thousand papers that actually demonstrate the safety and utility of this but maybe he's just not aware of those actual papers
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's funny that's a good way to put it but it's also strange for a scientist to say um you know i'm unaware of something that proves something safe you know knowing very well that you can't prove a negative right you can't show that something is safe you can just demonstrate a lack of harm
2: yeah exactly
1: Under certain conditions, so for and, and I understand the public doesn't think of that the same way, but this guy's claiming to be a uh, very well decorated, credible scientist, and it would be good for him to kind of follow those very basic rules that we all abide by. But what what were some of his other claims?
2: Oh, he started out with as you say that one, and then the first thing out of his his mouth was that glyphosate persists in the environment and has a half life of twenty 22- two. Years Now, of course, we know that the half-life is somewhere around 40 days, and it breaks down into completely non-toxic compounds. But then he goes on to say that glyphosate gives plants a bad case of AIDS. Now, in Africa, AIDS is decimating a significant portion of the population. So this, this would resonate and cause fear in the people in the audience, guaranteed.
1: Wow, so plant aids? Yeah, but 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 it, that really is horribly insensitive too. When so many people have lost parents and grandparents, and you know, many people are existing with HIV, even um, in the lack of um, of a lot, oftentimes proper medical care. I don't know. I don't know that I would have gone there if I were him. That just sounds like a real backfire. Did that. Do you think that that made people more afraid, or do you think that people were a little offended by that kind of thing?
2: I think it added to the fear factor, and as I say, he spoke for an hour, over an hour, and each statement was building on that fear more and more and more. He claimed that Glyphosate stimulates and increases the virulence of pathogens. He claimed that it was a powerful antibiotic. He claimed this magic that at 12 parts per billion in an acre, it will inhibit 100% of the uptake of magnesium. And I thought, man, oh man, I thought homeopathy had it down.
1: <laughs> well, especially because what 's the you know if you know the molarity of uh, magnesium in a field, yeah you know the, and, and people have done that math. You can look at uh, Stephen Duke and others have have said in their papers very clearly uh, that if you just look at the math of what's present in the field and in the plant and in soil uh, it's going to take a little more than twelve parts per billion to be able to bind or sequester or chelate all of that magnesium so yeah he he doesn't for scientists he doesn't really pay much attention to the science
2: uh very true uh one of the other things that i thought was really interesting was that at one point he said that we can now detect 100 percent of the glyphosate and its breakdown products that has been applied to a soil in the past 20 years and then later on, he goes on to say that we have a method where we can completely get rid of the glyphosate in one season. So, those are completely diametrically opposed ideas. But he managed to sell both.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's usually how he works. What about, uh, What about? did he make the claim... I know when I saw him, he was talking about how GE crops and probably glyphosate, how they cause all of the diseases in humans.
2: Oh, yeah. He had a list of 40-odd uh, diseases. He basically put up the Cenef, uh papers that are claiming all manners of ills to humans and plants uh, are caused, in fact, by glyphosate. Uh, it's, he put up a... a, a Pictures of uh, apparently there was an anencephaly outbreak in Yakima County in Washington State, and he claimed that that was due to glyphosate. He claimed that by this is this is really interesting. By two thousand and twenty, that's next year, half of the children in the United States will be autistic.
1: Yeah, I think that follows up on – he bumped incentives numbers five years forward. She said by 2025 – (laughs) <laughs> and we're, you know the funny part is we're getting there, and I don't know that that's going to follow through. Are, are most of these people? Do you think? And you know, when you look at guys like Huber or Senft, that uh, you know, are they kind of counting on the Grim Reaper to save them from their own misinformation?
2: Well, uh, if they don't get that outcome, they're going to not look very good when the time comes and all their prophecies have fallen completely flat. Did you know yeah. did you know that there's actually 17 mechanisms of carcinogenesis? I did not know that. There's exactly 17 and glyphosate activates all 17 of them.
1: <laughs> I think there's a few more than 17, and it also shows a complete ignorance of pharmacology. If you If we believe the numbers of what people claim are on food, you know the parts per billion in you know oat products or whatever, how that can be a legitimate level uh, when in the face of how this stuff gets through cells, how this stuff gets metabolized, how it gets moved in the body. Um, We know it's excreted in uh, urine and stools with a small amount metabolized by the liver. So it just seems very strange that, but, but then again, you know, the folks who are doing this are not necessarily playing by the rules of science. So their role is to go scare people about it and that's about it. And that seems to have been uh, Huber's plan now for many years.
2: Oh yeah, he had all kinds of claims. He claims that glyphosate causes chronic botulism poisoning in animals. Of course, Alison Van showed that 100 billion animals, and we can't find that evidence, so um, interesting. Uh, what else? Oh yeah, it Glyphosate accumulates in all your tissues, including your brain tissue, but he knows of a product that will detoxify you, all your tissues, except for brain tissue.
1: <laughs> so, wait, tell me more about this product. Is this the same, is it the same one that detoxifies soil, or does he have like a whole product line of things that you can, or you know, is this his products, uh, or are they things of his affiliates?
2: Yeah, see, uh, he didn't go into it much, but I was just, at that point, it was very near the end of his talk, and and he clearly had the audience scared out of their minds, and then, of course, he offers this miracle cure that will, uh, for a fee, of course, uh, that will uh, save them from the evils of glyphosate, which is poisoning the world.
1: Really? So where do you find the miracle cure? Uh, You know, I wish I
2: had written it down better, but I didn't. I was just so amazed that that he had the um, gumption to actually say that I've got the cure for you. (laughs) You Wow. Uh, It was was something.
1: Well, that is pretty amazing. And so did you get to ask him any questions? Uh,
2: Yes. I asked him. um, I specifically took the quotes from his colleagues at Purdue who said that what he was saying about plant diseases is not backed up by the evidence. And instead of actually answering my query as to why his colleagues at Purdue did not agree with him, he went on and started attacking you.
1: <laughs> Great. So, so, so it's my fault that you asked a question that he couldn't answer.
2: Uh, something like that, yes.
1: Yeah. Did he show the picture of me in the jester hat?
2: Uh, No, but he he was making all kinds of um, rather disparaging remarks about you and and your personal life. And it it was, uh, again, and, and that was immediately after saying that people can't challenge my science, so they attack me. And then he proceeded then to carry on and attack you.
1: Yeah, well, that's nice. That's nice that he goes personal life on it, too, especially when, you know, the people out there have that so well figured out. You know, the funny part is all the stuff people say that's being propagated. No one's ever asked me about what this is or if it's true because they know it's not. So, you know, why get why get reality into this? Was there anything else from Huber? that uh, really you wanted to talk about
2: uh, let's see the glyphosate in all vaccines so that would mean that we shouldn't use vaccines um, yeah it's just amazing uh, he, he quoted Seralini's work again um, Yeah, he was oh, oh one other one I, I thought was rather interesting apparently glyphosate is responsible for the uh, olive die off in Italy I thought it was a bacterial disease but what do I know
1: and he also has made the claim that it causes the citrus greening disease here in Florida. So uh, he's been um, very much in the spotlight of blaming all plant disease on a chemical uh, that, you know, when he was a faculty member and he was in the plant pathology department, I wonder what caused plant disease back then. You know, it just is, it's very strange for him to be able to make those claims. So when you look back at all of this, were you able to ab- able to really get any time yourself? You know, as an expert who had a counter idea, did anyone from the media or from the conference come talk to you and say, you know, hey, we really would like to hear more about what you think as someone in the science side?
2: Yes, in fact, I was uh, very fortunate to have uh, people on the ground in Africa help me. Uh, communicate with the media there and i did a variety of media both television and uh print and so i I was actually quite successful in getting the other side of the story out to the public and i also helped the media understand why these fear stories that these uh, people had said were not to be believed so it was uh, actually a rather um Good trip from my point of view.
1: And I didn't really ask in the beginning, and I should have, uh, what was the audience composition at this kind of conference?
2: Uh, it was uh, pretty mixed. There was about uh, just under 200 people there, I guess. Um, a lot of them were organic farmers or people who wanted to learn how to do that type of agriculture better, and and that's a uh, very reasonable uh, thing to do. But there was also the very diehard anti-GMO people, and, and there were some uh, government people uh, in the audience who just sat and listened to what was going on.
1: Did you get any time with the government folks?
2: Um, I did meet with the National uh, Biosafety uh, Authority, and um, it was very refreshing to have discussions about the science and where the science uh, leads us, and and they're completely on board with the global consensus on this uh, technology and how it can be used uh, in an appropriate manner to help feed um, the people and grow agriculture in a more sustainable manner in Africa. So they, they, they understood the science very well, and that was... Uh, Gratifying, and but they they don't uh, engage the anti uh, industry at all.
1: Well, it would seem really strange for them to bring people all the way, you know, across the world for a conference without having them participate in more events. So did all of these folks go to other universities or have media junkets and media, you know, interaction there in, in Nairobi? Uh, There wasn't much other
2: than uh, the last day of the conference. uh, Judy Carmen and her uh, colleague uh, rented time at the university and then with the billing that GMOs, are they safe? Uh, And so she was going to tell the same story that she had told about her uh, rats uh, at the university. So that was about the only one that was off-site from the conference itself.
1: How did that end up going for them? I mean, if they're doing this thing off-site, did you go to that, or did you attend it?
2: Uh, I did attend it, and it was it was rather interesting outcome. I showed up at the time that the talk was supposed to happen, and the students showed up at the time the talk was supposed to happen, and there was no Carmen. So we're sitting there for half an hour at least, and there's still no uh, Judy Carmen. And so, I took it upon myself, being an educator, I have a student body here, uh, why don't I talk about what I know to be real of this technology, and... So I talked for about twenty minutes, explaining the global opinions and the scientific consensus on the safe use of this technology, and the and the history uh, of safe use of this technology. And then um, eventually, after it's getting close to an hour, somebody came and whispered in my ear that I had to stop talking or else I would have to pay for the room and I said well thank you very much I'm done now and uh, <laughs> so I, I uh, went back to my seat and I thought well I best probably leave now because I doubt I'm going to be well received in that room once the people come and and the students flooded me they took every business card I had uh, and I clearly didn't take enough business cards. <laughs> and, and then I left. And uh, as I was leaving, um, Judy and um, her colleague came. I saw them getting off the elevator an hour plus late. Uh, and then they went in and gave their talk. Uh, my understanding is it was the same situation where um, people in the audience who knew about the real science, and I met a wonderful person from AATF, there uh he was unable to ask any questions afterwards as well
1: wow atf they have an outstanding presence and everything is about development of technology for africa a place where it's sorely needed so uh it, you know it's just so funny about that university thing you did there you pooped the party man that's pretty cool yeah.
2: <laughs> well, it wasn't planned, it just happened. If if they had actually arrived even close to the time where they were supposed to have began their talk, I would have just sat there and listened to their talk. Uh, I would have attempted to ask questions afterwards, but you know, what's an educator to do when he's sitting full in a room full of students with uh, nobody at the front of the room? I I just did what I do. <laughs>
1: But it also frames a good opportunity for anyone listening that, you know, there there is a role for the respectful party pooper. Um, you know, don't let these things happen in a vacuum and don't let them happen without having somebody there to at least ask a hard question or two, because the people who are there, 20 percent are diehard anti-biotech, anti-GM people, whatever, coming to see one of their heroes. But the other 80% are people who don't know much about it, who are kind of interested in learning more, and for them to get a one-sided false impression is unfair to them. And it's important for someone in the audience to stand up and say, you know, there are alternative viewpoints to this that are really important, and especially in the context of feeding people uh, really we have to look at very carefully so you know and asking some important hard questions and it's good that you were able to take advantage of that situation maybe we need to organize a club to do this you know the science party pooper club or something
2: <laughs> yes yeah uh, it's it was uh pure happenstance it wasn't planned at all it just sort of Unfolded in front of me, and uh, it turned out to be. Um, I, I've since got emails from some of the students who want to know more about this, and I agree with you. Whenever I get in front of an audience, I would say the vast majority of the audience are really there to just learn more because they don't know what to believe. There's there's so much misinformation out there on the internet that it, it does honestly scare them. Their fear is real, but what they want to know is, is that fear justified? And that's where uh, people like you and I are uh, always out there explaining what the real science says and explaining why the fear stories are not to be believed.
1: Yeah, and more important, you know, for those listening, you know, the, the leading with why it's important. And we always talk about the... and that's why science... Tends to lose these discussions. You've got a guy up there saying, I'm a you know emeritus professor from a Big Ten university, and here's this stuff that's killing you, versus someone like you or me who says, yeah, it, this stuff has some uh, benefits, it's got some risks, you can understand how to use it properly and safely, and you see how we have to speak as scientists. And that's why it's so important for us to lead with the why that in a place like Africa, that has been neglected for so many years, that has been the victim of exploitation, um, imperial, you know, imperialism, uh, other problems with with Africa, the you know, disease and the lack of attention from the world. Um, not that there aren't outstanding organizations working hard there; they are, but for them to um, be targeted by these kinds of organizations to be fed more misinformation is just off the charts wrong, and. Um, you know, great that you were able to get in there and talk about why it's important for us to be able to support technology for people that need it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the reason I went there is because it's very clear that Africa has been quite active. I think there's 26 countries with active R&D programs on genetically engineered crops. So this is African scientists making African GE crops to deal with African problems. Who would fight that? And unfortunately, this conference was designed to specifically instill fear so that the movement of these products from research and development into commercialization was not going to happen exactly as the Seralini paper did in 2012. It shut down Kenya. So when I got there and I was able to meet with uh, lots of people, after the conference was over, I thought, well, I wonder whether it made a difference. And as I was sitting in the airport, ready to leave Nairobi, the President of Kenya announced on national TV that he had instructed his agriculture ministry to fast track the remaining hurdles in order to get BT cotton. Uh, commercialized for the small farmers in Kenya, and that was—I felt so good.
1: Uh, that's that's amazing. It's, that kind of technology is something that's sorely needed there, and something that was derailed by the Seralini paper back in uh, whenever that was in 2012. And do you, do you get the sense from people you talk to there that things are changing? Definitely,
2: definitely. You've got Nigeria that has now uh, commercialized to, um, they've got BT cotton and BT cowpea that are now being released to their farmers. Kenya will very soon uh, release BT cotton to their farmers. And I went to the national performance trials and saw what these BT cotton plants look like and the potential they had and a mere kilometer away from there where a farmer had four or five bowls on his plant he had already sprayed a half a dozen times and probably had to spray another half dozen times versus the national performance trials where there are 150 bowls on the plant that's the technology that could be in the hands of small-scale farmers and hopefully very soon will.
1: How do you think time will look back at the people that laid on the ground in front of the steamroller? You know, I, I see the folks like Saralini and, you know, Huber especially. Why would you want to take, especially for Huber, what was a very reasonable career where he had good contributions? You have people who speak of him very positively as a plant pathologist at Purdue. And why would you go out on such a note of, he know, he must know. That what he's saying is not true, and what is driving that? And what is what, what's how? And especially, how do you think time will look at folks like this who stood in the way of technology for Africa?
2: Yeah, what drives these folks? Ah, gee, that's a mystery to me. I don't know whether it's financial, whether it's uh, notoriety, whether it's what I, I don't know because. As, as you say, with Huber, he was a quality scientist at one point in time. Uh, Tyrone Hayes did some good work. Interesting enough, one of his papers looked at atrazine and frogs in North America, and in his own abstract, it said they could not find any feminization. At the, but you know, he didn't talk about that. Um, why they do it, it's hard to know. How they will be viewed in history, I don't think it's going to... Um, look favorably upon them. Uh, One of the comments made by a TV uh, host where I did an interview uh, just before I left, he said, there's no stopping an idea whose time has come. It's such an interesting statement that it's clear that Africa is moving ahead with the development of genetically engineered crops for African problems. And it's also clear that money out of Europe is going to try to stop this from happening. So although I was there for this one conference, I think it's uh, reasonable to assume that they are going to continue to try and generate fear in Africa about using this safe technology.
1: Wow, that's a great way to go out. Um, let's put a bow on it here. Hey, Rob, thank you very, very much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time for sharing this with us today. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, where can they find you on social media?
2: Um, I'm at RobertWager1, the number one, uh, Twitter, and I'm also on facebook i think it's just robert wager on facebook and my website is robertwager.com. and all three of those are platforms that um i'd love to talk with people about what the science says what the science doesn't say and where its application is because the reality is we need the best of every technology if we're going to grow more food more sustainably on the same or less land
1: Wow, you just nailed it. You know, if we're going to have sensible intensification, because we don't have more land, we're going to need all tools on the table. And that's the best of agroecology. It's the best of biotechnology. And that's the way we're going to solve these problems. Thanks again, Rob. It was really nice talking to you.
2: Uh, It was definitely my pleasure. We'll talk soon.
1: And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Your reviews really matter. We've been looking at them lately, and it's fantastic to see the good things you find in this particular podcast. We're very excited to follow up on your suggestions. So if you think of someone you would like to hear or if you'd like to co-host an episode, be my guest in getting a hold of me ASAP. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech.